พุทธสบกวาโทอรหโทสมมาสมพุทธสนะโมทัสสะบกวาโทอรหโทสมมาสมพุทธสนะโมทัสสะบกวาโทอรหโทสมมาสมพุทธัสสะอาปารุธาเดสังมัตสัทวรายิสุรวันทาบมุนชันทุสัตังแต่แต่แต่แต่แต่แต่แต่แต่แต่แต่แต่แต่แต่แต่แต่แต่แต่แต่แต่แต่แต่แต่แต่แต่แต่แต่แต่แต่แต่แต่แต่แต่แต่แ
this is where, you know, only, only you can know what's really happening in your mind. And so recognize this, it's this awareness, not, not your thinking mind which will, uh, you know, can imagine anything, all kinds of ogres and demons, <clears throat> latent tendencies, uh, uh, maniacal possibilities, <laughs> who knows what. Uh, when you think about it, anything you think could be possible. But in terms of this present moment, here and now, this is what I, I can honestly observe. <clears throat> but of course, you might think maybe I wouldn't tell you the truth if there was something more than that in my mind. <laughs> Which could be true. <laughs> <laughs> but what I'm pointing to is how you can endlessly doubt yourself, doubt your motives, doubt your intention, doubt your ability, doubt the practice, doubt the teacher, doubt Buddhism, doubt, doubt, doubt. And this is, uh, doubt is the result of thinking. And they say, if you stop thinking, you stop doubting. <laughs> now, when I was just sitting here before this station, I was, you know, I was sitting here, empty. And then for the past several months, <coughs> I've been trying to remember the name of this, these friends of my parents when I grew up in Seattle, and then when my parents moved to Southern California, they moved also. They're very close, very good friends of my parents, but I've forgotten their name. <laughs> and for two months now, <laughs> this is while I was still in England, I kept trying to think, what was their name? <laughs> and, uh, and I can picture them, I can see their faces, and, uh, but I can't, couldn't think of their name. And then so suddenly I started any kind of last name, but nothing, nothing registered. And then, uh, so then I just stopped, I stopped my mind from thinking because I just, you know, once I still, I get into this intense wanting to find out the name and, and, uh, and I keep pursuing it. So I stopped the thinking process, go to the sound of silence. And then uh, during the interviews this afternoon, somebody was saying how they had the same problem, that they would forget something or somebody's name and then it would, if they stopped thinking about it, then suddenly it would appear. <laughs> So I was sitting here just about half an hour ago. <laughs> and their name appeared. <laughs> so it is, you know, that's about two months. And when you're my age, you start worrying about Alzheimer's. And <laughs> every time you, 
you can't remember something, you think, oh, here it is, you know, I'm ready. <laughs> well, this is this is an example of, of uh, re you know, this, this um, the obsession with trying to figure things out, trying to know things through concepts, trying to get proofs and facts and figures and, and uh, statistics and words from authorities and experts. And, you know, so it's like, it's so easy to quote, you know, like, my teacher told me and, and, uh, and you've, I find myself quoting Ajahn Chah because he seems to have a little more clout than I do. Ajahn <laughs> <laughs> But recognizing this, uh, you know, this is thinking mind and the way we, 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 uh, we, you know, we can have very intelligent minds. But sometimes, people that are highly intellectual uh, <clears throat> never figure out how to practice because they 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 do it theoretically, but there's so much investment in the conceptualization of it in understanding Buddhism uh, on that intellectual level. So notice in this paradigm of the Four Noble Truths, there's the Bariyati, Bhati Bhati, Bhati Vaiti, these three. It's an insight paradigm, you know, the statement, which is an intellectual statement, a word statement of teaching. So that's a, say, a, a statement there is suffering and should be understood is the next insight. So even recognizing there is suffering just on that level of the intellect is is an insight. It's, uh, you know, it's like, you know, this completely foolish person won't, won't admit suffering. And it's not just, oh yes, of course, suffering, but, you know, we can't, Let's not get depressed. Talk about something. Let's talk about uh, happiness. Talk about something inspiring, uh, because suffering does uh, sound a bit dreary. And you know, we we well, we know that. But let's not dwell on that. Old age, sickness, death. <laughs> uh, so then, this is a. You know, and it's true, if you get, one can just get morbid, if you just cling to the words and, you know, you're all going to die anyway. And, um, you know, nobody's really happy and <laughs> life is, life sucks. <laughs> so that you, <laughs> you get really down, you know, and get depressed. <laughs> But that's not, and that's not practice, but that can be an insight, you know, it can be an insight. <laughs> but an insight means it goes much deeper than just, just a, a complaint or, or just a, you know, a, a dismissal of, of suffering, but there is suffering, it's a positive recognition of it. So it's not a kind of cynicism and a, and a sour grapes type of statement. 
then then the insight should be suffering should be understood and so this is this is the batibata the practice and so they put it into practice looking at suffering you know so there is suffering understand it understanding you're, you're you're receiving something and you can look at it if you're always resisting suffering you'll never understand it because it you're re- you're just reacting to any kind of uh, negative feeling or fear or pain or whatever you just resist it but if you receive it then it's, you can look at something you know even something you don't that's ugly and nasty if you if you receive it then you can see it and look at it rather than just be caught in reacting by trying to get rid of it and then that in third insight suffering has been understood so this is what we call reflecting reflecting on the way it is so it includes both the the intellectual the the uh, practical pra- the practice and the result of the practice but the weighty is the result <clears throat> now applying that to the third noble truth of cessation niroda niroda sacca well, niroda is a pali word for for cessation translated as cessation and then sacca is truth Niroda Satya, there is the cessation of suffering, extinction of suffering, ceasing. So this is, and then, so this is a, this is a statement, a kind of insight that you, you get through observing suffering. And then the, this, then the insight the the practice the batibata is uh, suffering should be the end of suffering should be realized so this is the the practice of realizing the end of suffering and so like in using sound of silence and and the, these kind of tech these upayas or skillful means that i've been suggesting to you you're, you you know you can see the end of suffering just as the the doubting mind the the self doubts the the aversion you feel the the resistance or the whatever whatever form or quality your suffering might have you put it in the context of the sound of silence and it stops it ceases so you're, you're realizing that it's absence. Where before, you know, what is their name? That people, my parents' best friends, years I've known them. They had a strange name. And then, then a month later, I remembered it started with a Z. <laughs> Was it Zeller? No. Was it Zapata? No, no, no. <laughs> But nothing would would come forth. And then, I, then I'd get into trying to, to you know, spend maybe the hour here. Saying, uh, Zephyr, no. <laughs> but I was getting close because it actually, 
starts with a, with a Z. And, and so I stop. I go into the silence. And the, and the thinking ceases. That's the end of suffering. I'm realizing cessation. If I keep caught in this, you know, trying to figure it out and get it, and that I, I just spend the time, uh, you know, getting into this mode of trying to know, trying to figure it out. But then, uh, just this evening, I was saying, the name appeared out of, where did it come from? Uh, the name is Zappel. <laughs> Mr. and Mrs. Zappel. And so I, uh, that's it. That's the name. Yeah, I recognized it immediately. Well, this is uh, triviality. It's not important that I remember their name at all. <laughs> but I was going to ask my sister when I go see her. <laughs> but now I won't have to. <laughs> well, maybe that's not, you know, uh, tragic suffering or all that bad, but, but it, it, that, if you notice that, that trying all the time, trying to figure things out, and that state of doubt, and uh, that, that kind of intensive pushiness of the mind is, is dukkha, you know, is suffering. It's unpleasant to be just caught into it and until you just wear out and, and drift onto something else. But this way, you know, you actually can use these, these, even these trivial uh, experiences for realizing the end of, of dukkha. And don't wait till, you know, some huge tragedy strikes. That, oh, that also is, but, you know, it's, we're practicing with, with the ordinariness of human consciousness. So a lot of our suffering isn't from, from you know, real tragedy or uh, you know, brute brutality or uh, terrible abuse, but just the way we think and the and the way we we regard ourselves, like the the critical mind, the the self uh, disparaging tendencies to to see yourself in negative terms. So this uh, you know this the inner tyrant. And in the, 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 this movement called nonviolent communication, and uh, many of the people, uh, monks and nuns in England, have taken up nonviolent communication, which has been a good, had a good result actually, because some of the problems of the sangha have resolved themselves through learning how to talk properly <laughs> in a nonviolent way, because we can even think violently. And I began to notice how. How so many, you know, I'm not a violent person. I don't see myself as someone who enjoys violence and, and, and that. But I could also see tendencies, the way of speaking, which are quite, when, when observed, can be quite blaming and, uh, and, and have a violent effect on people. And I'm in a powerful position, being, uh, you know, in the, head monk of a, of a monastery, you're, you're in a very powerful place. So what you say, you know, even if you have no uh, bad intention, can, if said in, you know, in a, in a way that somebody 
feels maybe put down or blamed for something can be very confusing to everybody. So, like right speech, samawaja, learning how to use speech in ways in which communication takes place in a direct way and which is not blaming uh, uh, or abusing somebody else or or uh, sounding like that. Now, we're from a blaming society, so I noticed in my own life, when something goes wrong, my first thing, who's to blame? Whose fault is it? You know? So then I, I started, why do I always, why is that the first thought? Something goes wrong in the monastery. Who's to blame? It's almost automatic. You know, then I think, why do I, why is that my first thought? As if, you know, that, that the important always to blame it on somebody. And um, so then you either blame oneself, and say, I should have been more um, sensitive to the situation, maybe I'm to blame, or you're to blame. <laughs> but this blaming tendency is, is part of, you know, I see it all the time in, in myself and in the society. And in England, a very blaming society. We always want a scapegoat, somebody to, to put, put it onto. And that's one reason why we're so frightened of what people think, you know, why we care so much or fear rejection, because we know that we're in a society where we can be blamed for things, because that's the way the mind tends to work. If something is missing, something goes wrong, and I might be involved, who's to blame? I mean, I think medical profession in this country must live in, in, in agony. There's this litigious tendency of the Americans for everything, that every little ache and pain to blame it on the doctor. <laughs> So, I mean, it's, uh, it is, this is a blaming pattern. So, in, in, uh, and, this, and then we blame ourselves. So, so I just, you know, in my own practice, this, this, this inner tyrant, this, what they call in, in uh, nonviolent communication, uh, the jackal. And they have the giraffe and the jackal. And the giraffe is a kind of nice, uh, peaceful animal. And the jackal is one of these, you're to blame, you did it. <laughs> Pointing the finger and, and uh, nagging and accusing, blaming. So I see this jackal, you know, go off. Somebody disrobes and... It's probably your fault, Samito, because you didn't, uh, you know, you, you should have paid more attention to them. Or <laughs> and so the, 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 the mind, the, the jackal or the inner tyrant can always find, you know, some, some, something to, to ab- abuse in, my, in myself. It's a, in, in, I'm talking about the inner critic. So then, and even like giving talks and 
Dharma reflection. Uh, I've had to learn how to do this because, uh, you know, there's, when you're giving talk and, and people are looking, then people can be very critical. You're putting yourself in a place where, you know, everybody's looking at you and judging. And they, they can, and they, so you, you feel very vulnerable and very, uh, and it can be very frightening. So like in, in Amarbhati, you notice when you ask somebody, somebody who's never given a Dharma talk before, to give a Dharma talk, we have this high seat, you know, very nice seat that you sit up in and then, and you're, they're all petrified of climbing into this seat. Because once you're up there, you know, everybody, and you're, you're supposed to say something, you know, I'm supposed to say something wise and profound, and, and, uh, and probably I'll say something stupid, and I'll make a utter fool of myself. This is the jackal, in the, the, the inner critic, the, the, the shy, the frightened, the sense of, of uh, I, you know, I... People will see me as a fool. I'll, I'll appear stupid. I'll humiliate myself. <clears throat> so, in this way, you know, learning to to get over this is by I've used the sound of silence. This self consciousness, this fear of what others think, uh, of of uh, you know, projecting onto you any possible sign of criticism or rejection, I stop that whole, that whole process through awareness of the sound of silence. I don't allow it to take me over. Or if I do, if I forget and suddenly get into that mode, I, I know what it is well enough to stop it in any, as soon as I realize I'm, I'm, I'm into that pattern again. Well, this saves me a lot from the suffering I used to have, incredible suffering, self-consciousness. And, and being in the position I'm in, you, I'm in for the past 20, 30 years at least, 30 years now, I've been an Ajahn. That means I'm a teacher. When you're a teacher, then you're, what does that do? And People start expecting you to teach them, say wise things, uh, be all kinds of things, and and uh, you know, and, and not disappoint them, and so forth. So you, people criticize, give their opinions and views, but in the stillness of this awareness, there's room for criticism too. So it's like. Like, um, when I'm caught in my self-criticism, and then I'm so busy criticizing myself, and anyone else criticizes, me, I'd just be shattered. I'd be so hurt. I'd get so angry. So it was very hard to say anything to me, you know, to criticize me in any way, because, uh, you know, I just was not open to it. And... Uh, and and people, you know, I, I'm a big guy, so I can, you know, have a loud voice. <laughs> or, 
I could shout them down or bully them or do something, stop it. But these are not skillful means. This, these are not the kind of... This is not the kind of person I want to be, in other words. I, you know, by reflecting on the, the being a frightened person that is self-critical and, if, and terribly frightened of what others think and an incredible anxiety bound be, about being rejected and then being put on a high seat <laughs> and being a focus for community. Now, it's international. And it's not just in a little monastery in the backwoods of Thailand, but it's, you know, become quite a prominent figure in the Buddhist world. So, you know, this wherever I go, like Ajahn Emmer was saying, he avoided Theravada monasteries and that in India because <laughs> I did the same thing the previous year. <laughs> I was in India and I, I decided to go to the south and because uh, I'd never been there and there are not many Buddhists. Uh, so it's interesting and we went, I thought I'd go to Hindu ashrams. So we went to Kerala, we went to Amaji's ashram, the hugging mother. And so she was away at the time. So we walk into the ashram and, and then they give us some rooms to stay in and, and uh, Jayanto was with me, <laughs> uh, Dorothea's son. And uh, I'm, we go into, the, into the, where the, they meet and then this this young lady comes up and says, are you Arjun Smedo? <laughs> and I don't recognize her, and I realized that I did, I'd met her. Arjun Sajito and I went on a trek in the Pyrenees Mountains about seven, eight years before this. And we, we met a family in, uh, around far in, in uh, France, across the Spanish border, and, they, and this, this, this young woman was only 12 then, her name was Daisy. <laughs> and that's his uh, devotee of Amaji. And then, uh, then we go to Tiruvannamalai, to Sri Ramana Ashram, I think. Nobody, this Hindu, <laughs> nobody's going to know me there. And so we it's time we arrive there where we have to eat the meal before noon. So we go to this place, Tali House, where they, you know, sell Indian food and sit down and um, a man is sitting nearby and he looks up and he says, Ajahn Sumato. <laughs> and then I walk into the ashram afterwards and, and I'm walking, I mean, I hear somebody calling, Ajahn Sumato, and there's, there's another friend who's, who stays at Sri Ramana Ashram, you know. So then, and while I was there, I don't know, I met several more. So this is, fortunately, nobody was asking to, for me to teach anything. But, and when we went to uh, Varanasi, they kept running into Thai monks on the ghats. And they kept inviting me to meals and things, which I would uh, uh, get out of because... I know that I it would be put in a position of, of uh, having to be the teacher again. And so it's just like uh, during that year I wanted to 
just not be, you know, not be uh, caught into that uh, and get some perspective on it. But the main practice isn't isn't not teaching or refusing or or uh, hiding away, but in in uh, <laughs> solving the problem from within. And this is this I feel very I've been very successful with because uh, uh, I I can do that. I can stop creating myself into being teacher or anybody into that stillness where the thinking ceases. The self-consciousness, when the thinking ceases, the self-consciousness ceases. The concern about what others think ceases. Uh, the, the worry uh, and the self-criticism cease. So there is awareness. And from this awareness, then speaking from this awareness, rather than from uh, uh, being a teacher or being somebody who teaches Dhamma or thinking I'm some kind of authority or expert or, or meditation master or anything like that, that doesn't, that I don't, don't create those kind of images. Because even if they should arise in consciousness, I, I stop them. I don't, I don't want to identify in any way with, with any concept. Because I trust in the awareness itself, in the emptiness. Now with this, uh, with this uh, emptiness, then, and this I experienced as the sound of silence. There's many questions here about sound and silence, and, uh, and so it's a nada sound in in the Sanskrit Pali called nada, which means sound. Uh, this was, uh, you know, in, in my life uh, in the early life as a monk, uh, I came across this sound by accident. It, because it's not really stated in any kind of scriptural text that I've found in the Pali Canon. <clears throat> but um, because I had developed this reflective capacity, I, I started noticing it. And then I, I started thinking, well, this is, you know, this is going on all the time. It's just, I don't, I forget it. You know, I get distracted and I start thinking about things and I don't notice it anymore. But as soon as I'm aware, then I notice. So, so then it was cultivating this, this, uh, this awareness around what I call the sound of silence, or whatever it is. Now there's some debate about what it is, whether it's the, the cilia in your ear vibrating, or, or your blood vessels rattling around, or whatever. I mean, it could be anything. I don't know what it is. And I've never found any, you know, any explanation of, you know, people with authority say it's this or that. But the truth is, it doesn't really matter what it is, because it is. <laughs> and therefore, why not use it? You know, if it, it acts, you know, in terms of experience right now, 
if I tune into that vibration, I stop thinking. That cuts off the cessation of thoughts at that moment. And I can be aware of that. This is the realizing cessation. It's just this. It's not, in the, you know, it's not fantastic, you know, like every... Some people are in the Abhidhamma wait for these big moments where everything collapses and they see the kalapas and thing, it changes. But uh, to me, that, that de- that's too dependent uh, a sense of cessation. It's too concentrated. Where this is, this is happening all the time. This, you can, this can integrate into daily life, into activity. I don't need to... to uh, remove myself and concentrate for, for days in order to, to realize cessation. Because it's a, it's a natural happening that, that goes on whether you realize it, recognize it or not. So in reflecting and contemplating these Four Noble Truths, then uh, you know, I'm not interested in in the macrocosmic reality of scientific truth and and physiology and and all the rest, because it doesn't seem you know that that just takes more thought, it takes more doubt, it takes more it forms more opinions, and 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 that's the whole problem is is not how profoundly I think or how you know reasonable, rational, and how much knowledge I have about everything in the universe because the problem is the suffering of being attached to thinking. This is what I've, you know, even when I'm, you know, not, not just thinking negatively, but just being bound into the thinking process is, is, to, is to me dukkha. This blind, this abhicca, this ignorance, and the identity the way I, the way my mind functions, its criticalness, and it, and, and the way it, I get caught into it, and it goes on and on. And I can, you know, I try to, as Ajahn Umarupu said yesterday, think pink. And the question in one of these things is, what does he mean by think pink? <laughs> but I just assume he means thinking positively. Is, uh, you know, thinking in a pretty way. Pink is a pretty color. So, you know, when you... In, in the Isan, where I used to live, people used to like to paint things pink because they thought it made them pretty. When actually, usually it made it look terrible. You know, <laughs> just covering over everything with, with pink paint. But it is a pretty color. So in terms of thinking pink, we can, we can uh, you know, think in, in pretty nice ways and then kind of obsess ourselves with pink thoughts and pretty ideas. But it's hard to sustain it for very long, especially if you're a cynic like I am. And so, it, you know, I'm, I'm not, I can't do that myself. And without making myself sick. It's like <laughs> eating pink cotton candy, too much of it. 
So, it, 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 you know, even the best of thinking. I remember uh, in, in the early years of monastic life, I, I, was, uh, I, was, I was kind of weary of a lot of my conditioning because I, I grew up in the 30s and 40s in the West Coast here. And so all the kind of, and we didn't have television then, so we had the radio. So what I find, it goes on in my mind sometimes, are a lot of things that come from pop songs of the 40s and commercials <laughs> that you'd hear on the radio when you're a child, because these were the, is what you hear all the time. And I, so I didn't, I wasn't, there was no television at the time. And I thought, this is a pretty, you know, uh, boring diet of, uh, of sanya, of memory, just this rubbish, this nonsense. And you know how pop songs of the 40s, how silly they were. And uh, so, so I started memorizing, you know, I memorized the uh, um, sonnets by Shakespeare, I memorized poems by Swinburne, just to have more profound thoughts in my mind. <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to remember something. I want, I want to remember something that sounds good anyway. <laughs> I'm telling you. Tennyson, I, I went. So I, and Shelley, these poets. So, I mean, they, I certainly enjoy that also, but, but that's not, it's still suffering. If that's all I can do is every time a negative thought comes in, try to think of a Shakespearean sonnet. <laughs> but if I, if I, you know, understand how my mind works, then I can, uh, uh, you know, I began to resolve this conflict through this awareness, through this sound of silence. And in... Um, living, and when I went to live in the UK, this is 1977, I'd spent 10 years with Ajahn Chah in Thailand, and, and uh, after eight years, uh, we started Wat Ba Nana Chah, because Ajahn Chah, was, uh, so many Westerners were coming to uh, Uborn at the time, and there were a lot of problems about teaching them. And I was the only one that could translate, you know, and use Thai at the time. So, so I was in a position was always having to translate everything for the for the new uh, Western uh, people that would come, or the Western monks. And there was conflict with the Thai monks and the cultural clashes and. And Wat Bapong was a very busy monastery, very, his Ajahn Chah was increasingly famous. So he, he wanted, he suggested starting a, a branch monastery for teaching Western people or English-speaking people or people that couldn't speak Thai or understand the Thai language. So, and since I was the senior, most senior Western monk, who gets assigned this position? <laughs> and at first I was, didn't like the idea at all. Uh, and when it was suggested, I thought, no way am I going to do that. 
I don't want to be abbot or teacher of all these Western people because all they do is complain and criticize. <laughs> and, and I just, I want to go off, I want to go off to an island. So on my, after my fifth loss, I did escape. I left Wat Bapong, went to, onto the island of Sichang, which is in the Gulf of Thailand, off Ziracha and Chonburi. So at last I found an island, and nobody's going to find me here. <laughs> and, uh, and then the, somebody told me about an island further out. I mean, Gorsi Sichang is rather close to, to the mainland, but if there's another island, small island, way out in the Gulf, nobody ever goes to. And so I thought of even going there. Just I wanted to hide away. I couldn't bear the responsibility and the endless problems that being with Western monks created for me, <laughs> or I created about them. But anyway, <clears throat> I got very ill, couldn't stay on Gort Si Chung, ended up in the hospital on the mainland, and uh, was too sick and couldn't go back for the Vasa, for the rains retreat. And there were no doctors there, so I had to stay in a monastery on the, in Chonburi. And then after that, I went to India for a pilgrimage. And it was in India that, that I had a kind of, uh, like uh, St. Paul on the road to Damascus <laughs> kind of experience. I suddenly felt this incredible gratitude to Ajahn Chah. So I just suddenly, I started just thinking, I've got, I forgot to go back. I just left. Uh, you know, how can I, how can I repay Lung Po Cha? He's given me so much and I just walk out like that just because I think of myself, I'm so selfish and, and uh, of course that's the inner tyrant again. But it was, was uh, you know, suddenly I realized I had to go back to Thailand. And so I didn't, I said, when I met Ajahn Chah, I said, I'm yours for life. <laughs> Because I am a Leo, so I get very dramatic. <laughs> <laughs> so then the following year, he said, he, he sent me off to, the, to start this monastery called Wat Banana Cha. And uh, then, and so that, that was quite, I learned, you know, I accepted that because I was determined not to you know, this was, it wasn't just for me anymore. I was, it was coming from gratitude and, and real appreciation and wanting to, to help. So I wasn't just concerned about my own peace of mind in my practice anymore. But I had to take on the role of an Ajahn at that point. I only had eight, eight years as a bhikkhu at the time. So I didn't feel particularly ready for such a position, but because it came, you know, and, I didn't seek after it, and and it was a way of supporting Ajahn Chah. That's how I saw it, you know. So I accepted it. So then, over the years, and going to England two years later, you know, the role of Ajahn Sumato, and and then it, it was in England where I really started 
developing sound of silence. Because if I was going to survive in the UK <laughs> as a Buddhist monk, I needed to, you know, I needed the cessation experience. So it was in London itself, in, you know, in the streets of London that I suddenly remembered the sound of silence. It's like something really woke, awoke me as on a, you know, we lived in the northwestern part of London, the Hampstead area, and, the, and, and walking down this hill one afternoon, this, this uh, sound of silence attacked me. And it was like being attacked, I was walking and suddenly smacked me right in the face and I thought this is it you know I suddenly remembered and from that point on I've I've developed this uh, practice cultivating this uh, nada now so it was in London you know on a busy street it wasn't in a in a in a remote hermitage all very quiet and and it was it was you know it it just happened to me really and it seems like when you're ready, these things just arise, you know, come to you. They say when you're ready, the teacher appears. So then over the years, developing this, because in positions of being, you know, I became president of the Buddhist society after Christmas Humphreys died. I was put in all kinds of important positions, you know, given... Uh, important titles and raised up and when when people recorded my teachings and put them in books so I became quite well known and so then this uh, you know so people uh, you know what are you going to do with this with this kind of feedback where people uh, are expecting so much wisdom and uh, and you're building and you're getting caught in a trap of becoming well-known or, you know, and, and, and people then project all kinds of their things onto you because you're, they no longer see you're just a human being. You're, you're a senior, you're Ajahn Sumato. You're, they call it meditation master and all that kind of stuff. So, so then this is uh, to, to, you know, this tends to be very isolating when you're, like renown tends to make you feel very isolated. So then, recognizing that that this, this that without this emptiness, this cessation, then you know, just trying to operate from becoming a teacher and a famous person or whatever, that this is uh, you know in itself is suffering. This is not. This is not the path. This is not the um, the way of non-suffering. So, how to to accommodate this karma without in any way attaching to it? And so, the the this third noble truth is the obvious answer to that question. Because in that emptiness, there's no there's no person. And this is and this is the knowing of of anatta. You know, it's not just trying to pretend I I I don't care about all these 
this, these things and the, what people call me and all that, because on a personal level, it still operates. You know, there's still, you know, if, if I give much room for my personality to take over, it just operates in the same old patterns. So I don't trust that. The personality I know is something not to bind myself to, not to give it uh, any chance to take over my consciousness, because I know through examination, through investigation, that this emptiness is non-suffering. Attachment to the personal habits, to my identities, to my positions, to my fears, to self-consciousness, then back into the sangsara, the realm of suffering, immediately I'm there. But now, because of the cultivation of this, pra- of this way, then the suffering there, as soon as I realize I'm, I'm back in this, I can stop it because I know exactly you know, how to empty this, how to let this suffering cease in consciousness. So it's not a matter of running away or hiding or controlling anything, but of understanding how your mind works. You know how you know this is where you're really becoming uh, skilled in in thinking and in and and you you have your it doesn't make you heartless and unfeeling because I'm not attached to to uh, conditioned phenomena nor to emotion but it does open up the whole realm of sensitivity and and then the sensitivity is received, it's not suppressed. You know, it's, you know, sensitivity, vedana, and so forth, the senses, is fully received, but not identified with, not, we don't, I don't, I don't allow this proliferating sense of, of me to, to operate when, through, when things happen, like the grief. Uh, when my mother died, you know, I didn't feel what you would call grief. You only have one mother, she's dead. And so this feeling of grief was there, but I didn't proliferate around that feeling. It's a natural emotion that comes from loss, you know, it's part of our human, human condition. So I actually felt this, but I didn't proliferate create any problem around it. So in our, in our lives as human beings, you know, we, we, we're, feel, we're, we're free to feel, you know, it's not a, you become a kind of zombie, an emotionless zombie that, that uh, no longer feels anything. But the feeling, because this is a feeling realm, a sense realm, then the, the sensitivity is, is even heightened. Because you're not controlling, you're not trying to control emotions anymore. Where before, my generation, we were, we were brought up to control, you know, like boys don't cry, kind of, uh, you know, the macho style, where, you know, you, 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 you're not supposed to cry if you're a boy. So you learn all kinds of ways of stopping emotion, not to feel. You know, time as a teenager, I was really you know, had developed all kinds of suppressive tendencies to stop feeling anything because 
men shouldn't be crying, sign of weakness. <laughs> now I cry all the time. Because <laughs> I'm not trying to control it. <laughs> and something, you know, life is sad. You know, you see, experience or hear sadness and, 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 it, and it brings this, 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 uh, this sense of, of uh, sadness into consciousness. The loss and the, un, you know, when you hear about, like, uh, you know, children dying of starvation in Africa or something like this, it's sad. You feel it. You feel its sadness when you even just read about it in a newspaper. So, you, you, you know, you're more aware of the sensitivity of how things are received, of what's sad and what isn't. It's not depressing, though. To get depressed, I have to cling to sadness and, 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 and be obsessed myself with negativity and self-loathing and that to, to get into a real, you know, state of uh, what I would call a depression. But through the awareness practice, then this, this is no longer possible because the awareness is, it transcends, you know, embraces it all. And so one is, one is abiding in the awareness, not in the object that you're aware of. But you're not, and also you're not judging the object you're aware of. You're not allowing the the jackal or the inner tyrant to say, you shouldn't feel like that or that's a bad thought or a good monk wouldn't feel this way or wouldn't think that. You don't, you don't allow that to happen anymore, not through suppressing, but knowing how to, you know, not give room for that habit to, to uh, continue to proliferate with it anymore. So in this reality of cessation, this is, this is how I experience it, the third noble truth. Now cultivating that in the fourth noble truth is uh, there is the path of non-suffering, there is the eightfold path or the majima bhatibhata, the middle way as they call it. And so, uh, the way of non-suffering. And, and so this, this is the way of non-suffering, this awareness. And this I, I know, you know, because of the insight and the cultivation of this way, as this is the way of non-suffering. Because using suffering, whenever the paka karma, the resultant karma of a situation arises, you know, you still people praise or blame or, you know, your loved ones die, your teachers die, uh, you know, things happen in, uh, you know, loss of friends and all kinds of, of things happen in one's life. Uh, physical pain, so forth. But this is, uh, this is what we call vipaka karma or resultant karma. This is the result of being born. You know, what is, what is, why old age? This, old age is the result of birth. If you're never born, you never get old. Isn't that right? <laughs> Death is the result of birth. You know, so the body's born, grows up, gets old and dies. And 
And so, just this is this is so obviously true, you know that that uh, and yet we 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 sometimes aren't really aware of this obvious of this reality that all that is born ends and ceases, and and so in the desire realm we're we're not allowing ourselves to see cessation of anything as soon as anything gets a little unpleasant or uh, painful or boring or whatever, we seek rebirth in something else. Just look at your life, how you, you know, as soon as you get bored or a little, dis, feel a little bit restless or uneasy or fed up or something like this, then you go to something else. You, you eat something or you have a drink or you switch on the TV or surf the, the website or <laughs> or you you know, change the subject, or do anything, smoke cigarette, anything to, to distract. And, and so these are like a rebirth process, the way we, we never allow ourselves to experience cessation, because we're so caught, as soon as anything gets, uh, we still a bit of discomfort, or fear, or, uh, or boredom, we, we can go into the next rebirth. So in this sense, rebirth or bhava and jati in the Paticca Samuppada is this, you know, the seeking of, of, you know, the desire looking for something to, to be born into again. Now these are mental births, mental rebirths. And if we <clears throat> observe this, stay with the, with the mental births that we have, we see their cessation rather than just going for on, you know, running from one thing to the next. So that's why in this Four Noble Truths uh, teaching, you know, the, the truth of cessation, the reality of cessation, it's, it's to be realized, cessation is to be recognized, seen, known, is like this. It's not that I go unconscious or I physically die, it's it, Lung Pacha says, it's die before you die. The ego is dying all the time. If you let the ego die, then, then what's left is awareness, emptiness, non-self, consciousness. It's pure. It's not, it's not tainted with anything. This purity is a natural state for us. Uh, and, and yet we we fail to recognize it. And so in cultivating the, this eightfold path or this middle way is through the, the, uh, cultivating this awareness until it, you know, you really can prove this and, 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 and know this reality, this insight is, is a profound understanding of this reality. So it's never, it doesn't remain theoretical. So it never, so the doubting mind no longer uh, has, has control over your consciousness. So this is like a, a Buddha mind, Buddha knowing the Dhamma. This is a awakened consciousness of a human individual. Uh, this is wisdom, a universal wisdom, not personal uh, wisdom that we acquire from other sources, but this is 
natural wisdom, this is Dhamma that comes through this reflectiveness, through investigation of Dhamma. And, and these 12 insights into the Four Noble Truths. So the Four Noble Truths, three aspects of each truth, three times four is what? <laughs> 22 insights. No, no, 12 insights. I still I haven't gotten that. My Alzheimer's is not that bad yet. So this, 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 this way of reflecting and observing is, the, uh, is encouraged. So what, what I've been sharing with you in this retreat is, this, is, is a course for your consideration. You, know, and you have to apply it yourself, see if, you, if it works for you. I can't make it work for you. <laughs> but, and I can't force you to do it. But I certainly encourage you to to find out, you know, is, this is, uh, is for you to find out for yourself, because uh, then that is, uh, the, then you can, then there's, you'll be on, completely beyond doubt if you know this reality yourself. Or if you just believe what I'm saying, and that you don't really know, so anybody could put a doubt into your mind. Ajahn Sumedha is, he's not really a Buddhist. <laughs> Or he's Mahayana, you know. <laughs> Theravadas can be really snooty. And really, we're the we're the pure Buddhist orthodoxy. We're not. We don't practice Mahayana. They think. I think Ajahn Sumedho's Mahayana. <laughs> don't trust him. <laughs> well, whatever, you know. You want to call it Hinduism. I've been called a Hindu and whatnot, but. It doesn't. It doesn't really matter if if it works, does it? You know, does it? The the proof of the pudding is in the eating. You know, so does it? Does it? Is have you really seen the way of non-suffering? And uh, and uh, this this is this you have to to recognize for yourself. So I'll stop here. with the the highest blessings which is uh, page 32 Thus have I heard that the blessed one was staying at Savati residing at the Jeta's Grove in Anatta Pindika's Park Then in the dark of the night a radiant deva illuminated all Jeta's grove 
She bowed down low before the Blessed One. Then standing to one side, she said, Devas are concerned for happiness and ever long for peace. The same is true for humankind. What then are the highest blessings? Avoiding those of foolish ways, associating with the wise, and honoring those worthy of honor. These are the highest blessings. Living in places of suitable kinds, with the fruits of past good deeds, and guided by the rightful way, these are the highest blessings accomplished in learning and craftsman skills with discipline highly trained and speech that is true and pleasant to hear. These are the highest blessings providing for mother and father's support and cherishing family and ways of work that harm no being. These are the highest blessings, giving with Dhamma in the heart, offering help to relatives and kin, and acting in ways that leave no blame. These are the highest blessings, steadfast in restraint and shunning evil ways, avoiding intoxicants that dull the mind and heedfulness in all things that arise. These are the highest blessings, respectfulness and of humble ways, contentment and gratitude, and hearing the Dhamma frequently taught, these are the highest blessings, patience and willingness to accept one's faults, seeing venerated seekers of the truth, and sharing often the words of Dhamma, these are the highest blessings, the holy life lived with ardent effort, seeing for oneself the noble truths and the realization of Nibbana. These are the highest blessings, although involved in worldly ways, unshaken the mind remains. And beyond all sorrows, spotless, secure, these are the highest blessings. They who live by following this path, no victory wherever they go, and every place for them is safe. These are the highest blessings.
Patipano Bhagavato Savakasango Sangam Namami 